Welcome to the Bible for My Ordinary Life podcast. My name is Alicia Parker, and I live a pretty ordinary life, and I really enjoy studying and teaching the Bible. I believe the Bible is more than just a collection of interesting stories. It's God's communication to humankind, a revelation about who He is and how we fit into the story He is telling. Even if we feel like our personal story is a little bit ordinary. The Bible includes 66 individual books with a unifying theme, God desires a relationship with us. So I'm glad you're here, and I hope by the time we're done, you've learned a little bit more about who God is and the relationship he desires to have with you. Hi everyone, I'm excited to talk with you today about the second half of John chapter 3. I'll be starting in verse 22 today, which is right where our gospel writer John transitions from the story of Nicodemus to a narrative involving John the Baptist and his disciples. John the Gospel writer tells us in verse 22 that after this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside where he spent time with them and baptized. In verse 23, he goes on and says, John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water there since John had not yet been thrown into prison. So once again, we have details about the setting provided to us by John, the author, for his narrative. We know that Jesus and his disciples are baptizing in the Judean countryside, and John, the Baptist, and his disciples are baptizing in Anan, near Salim, because there was plenty of water there. We don't know much about this area, but we can surmise that there's plenty of water because Anan literally means springs and Salim means peace. So this is likely an area where he traveled, where he could find an abundance of water in which to baptize people. Perhaps they were spring-fed waters or tributaries leading to a larger body of water. We're not exactly sure, since this is the only place in the Bible where this location is mentioned. We also know it's not where John started his ministry, which, if you'll remember, was in Judea, near the Jordan River. In fact, it's Jesus that's now ministering in the area where John started the Judean countryside. Recall that John's primary job was to be the front runner that announced Jesus was coming. In Luke 1, the angel that predicts John's birth and his role in life said these words, He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go as a forerunner before the Lord in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared for him. At this point in our narrative, John the Baptist has fulfilled his calling. He has done exactly what was set out for him to accomplish. He announced Jesus, and now Jesus is on the scene. And yet we find John still serving but he's serving in a different place. And Jesus is now ministering in the place where John had started. Now keep in mind that baptism is a relatively new concept in Jewish religious practices. Prior to John the Baptist, there is no recorded practice of baptism apart from cleansing rituals often performed by the priests. John wasn't named John the Baptist by his parents. He earned that moniker, John the Baptizer, because he was baptizing people as they repented of their sins and as he preached of the coming Messiah. So this new concept of baptizing people earned him the nickname John the Baptizer, 
we refer to him as John the Baptist, not to be confused with the Protestant branch of churches called Baptist churches. John was a common name, and so to distinguish who he was, he was referred to as John the Baptizer. These next few verses give a glimpse of how utterly uncommon he was in terms of his commitment to his mission and his personal humility. He might have had a common name, but he was a very uncommon man. Let's take a look, starting in verse 25. John, the Gospel writer, says, Now a dispute came about between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew concerning ceremonial washing. So they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the one who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, about whom you testified, see, he is baptizing, and everyone is flocking to him. So here we have arrived at the conflict in this part of the narrative. Every good story has a conflict, and a masterful storyteller will describe the conflict in such a way that the audience waits with rapt attention for the resolution. In this narrative, John the Gospel writer summarizes this conflict in these two verses. Basically, John the Baptizer had disciples who come to him with a complaint about Jesus. Did you notice that they addressed John with the Greek word rabbi? We learned about this term in our last episode. Rabbi means teacher. Both John and Jesus are addressed with this term. You see, there were many other rabbis in this day and time. So tuck this away as we go through the book of John. What distinguishes true believers from the rest is the belief that Jesus is not just a good teacher or rabbi, but also the Son of God. John's disciples say, Rabbi, the one who was with you on the other side of the Jordan River, about whom you testified, okay, let's just stop there. Why didn't they just come out and say Jesus? Why the long description about him? Is it because they are trying to build a case that John was first on the scene and Jesus is taking over as a more popular preacher? Perhaps. Let's consider their motivation as we finish reading what they say. See, he is baptizing and everyone is flocking to him. Really, guys? Everyone? Like the whole wide world? The Greek word used here is pas, and it means everyone. But just like we sometimes exaggerate or use hyperbole, that is exactly what is going on here. Do you hear the sense of pride in their voices and in their statement here? The rising conflict here is, how will John respond? Will he stir up a greater crowd for himself and launch a campaign against Jesus? Or will he be more subtle and drop hints to those around him about how his ministry is better than Jesus's and he should still be followed by seekers? Or will he use tactics of false humility while trying to offer backhanded compliments to those who follow Jesus and to Jesus himself? I'm asking these questions first because I know that the answer to each of these is no, but also because I know that these are ways that the human heart wants to respond. You, like me, may have seen evidence of these kinds of responses in your own heart or in the hearts of others. John is tempted here to be very prideful. We don't know exactly what the root of this conflict is. John, the author, only gives us this clue that a dispute came about due to ceremonial washing. We are told that Jesus's ministry is gaining followers and popularity and John the Baptist's ministry and following is decreasing. 
John's faithful followers find themselves jealous and prideful and try to inspire John to action, to defend himself, his ministry, and his place in society. But my friends, jealousy has no place in ministry. What ministries have you been involved in? Teaching children or adults? Maybe giving through food donations or monetary? Perhaps serving others through acts of kindness? Or maybe you're involved in preaching or something else. Maybe you feel like you don't even have a place of ministry. Ah, but you do. Are you a parent? A grandparent? A spouse? A friend? A co-worker? In all of those roles, we have the opportunity to minister to others, and therefore, we have a ministry. And have you ever looked at another doing a similar ministry and felt a sense that it was going better for them? That they were more popular, more impactful, more talented, more gifted? Or how about this? Ever compared your parenting with someone else's? Or your job role? Your ability to host a party? The way you decorate your home? The kind of car you drive? This is particularly difficult in this day and age when everyone is posting things to social media that puts their very best foot forward. Every one of us is faced with this temptation. We are born prideful. We are born to be egocentric. And we spend a good majority of our lives being tempted to use the success of others as a measuring stick for our own worthiness. John the Baptist was not immune to this temptation, but his response is absolutely uncommon. He looks at his jealous, riled up disciples and says these words, No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. Wow. Let's percolate on that a moment. Nothing I have, or you have, is from ourselves. It is from God. Think about your gifts and talents, and don't fall into the temptation to say that you don't have any. You do. I don't care how ordinary your life may feel. Everyone has things they're naturally good at. And if you're a believer, you have been given spiritual gifts as well. Those gifts and talents are from God. Other gifts you wish you had? I do. I wish I had the gift to sing. And I mean really sing. Now, I can carry a tune and strum my guitar well enough to lead people through a collection of worship songs. But I don't really have the gift of singing. I'd love to be able to just open up and belt out a song and truly have it sound amazing. But on my very best day, it sounds good enough. Singing is just not my gift. Teaching is more my wheelhouse. When I'm in a classroom or a small group setting explaining difficult concepts and helping people understand, break down complex ideas into small, understandable chunks, I know then that I'm using a gift. It feels natural, and I'm regularly affirmed that this is an area in which I'm gifted. But you know what? I've seen some other really talented teachers. And I can sometimes get that little prickle in my heart of jealousy where I start to compare myself to them and wish I was better. Now, I wish I was better at singing, but I know that's not my area of gifting, and I'm okay with that. But in the areas where I excel, my heart, it wants to be prideful. It wants to be the best. Maybe you can identify with that. This is the moment where we find John. His disciples are saying, 
This guy you introduced, who was a nobody until you pointed him out, he is way more popular than you now, and you need to do something about it. And so what does John do? He acknowledges that all he has is a gift from heaven. There is no reason to be jealous when he has no claim over his talents to begin with. John goes on in the next few verses and says these words. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John, like a great teacher, uses an analogy a similar story to help his disciples understand his point. At a wedding, it is the bridegroom who gets married to the bride, and all the bridegroom's friends are there to celebrate that for the bridegroom. When my husband and I got married, we had groomsmen and bridesmaids there with us. The focus was not on them, it was on us, and the celebration was on us and our marriage. Yes, our wedding party looked beautiful, and stood up front with us. But no one came to our wedding to celebrate our wedding attendance. John says to his disciples, I am the friend of the bridegroom. He recognizes that Jesus is the bridegroom. So who's the bride then? It's the church, of course. We'll see this imagery all throughout the New Testament of Jesus and the church represented as the bridegroom and the bride. So John knows his place, and he reminds these jealous disciples that he is standing beside the bridegroom, rejoicing for him. And in verse 30, he says the most uncommon thing yet. He must increase, and I must decrease. That philosophy is rare. Our nature is to put ourselves first and to increase our territory, our influence, our belongings, our popularity, and anything else we can magnify. Sin tells us, put yourself first. I see this beyond just in my own heart. It's in our businesses, our churches, our neighborhoods, our children's playdates, our politics, and all of our relationships. It's counter to our nature to say, I must decrease and someone else must increase. But John clearly understands this and passes the test of temptation in this situation. In the next few verses, we learn several key attributes about Jesus. Starting in verse 31, John says, The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For God sent him. And he speaks God's word since he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. The one who believes in the son has eternal life, but the one who refuses to believe in the son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Notice in verse 31, he repeats a phrase twice. The one who comes from above is above all. He says it twice. And sandwiched between this is the phrase, the one who is from earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. He is reinforcing that Jesus is from heaven, but he, John, is not. 
Do you remember in our last episode when Jesus said very similar words to Nicodemus? In verse 11 of this chapter, Jesus says, We speak what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I told you about things that happen on earth, and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heaven, except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man? Nicodemus came to Jesus relying on his earthly wisdom, not recognizing that he was speaking to Jesus who had come from heaven, but not John the Baptist. He knew his place, and he knew who Jesus was. It's clear here that he knows Jesus is greater than he, and Jesus has come from God. We also learn here that those who accept Jesus' testimony have affirmed that God is true. Verse 32 actually says, He testifies to what he has seen and heard, yet no one accepts his testimony. But then in verse 33, right after that we read, The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed God is true. So what's the deal? Is the Bible contradicting itself? It says no one has accepted his testimony, and then turns right around and says the one who has accepted his testimony. So no, it's not a contradiction. Again, it's a literary and speaking technique that we often use. It's called hyperbole. In fact, earlier in this chapter, Jesus says to Nicodemus, We speak what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. And the you in that verse is plural. So twice, in a matter of a few verses, we see the idea that no one accepts Jesus' testimony, when in fact we know from Scripture that many did. It's an exaggeration meant to highlight that human nature is to not accept Jesus' testimony, and by and large, many did not accept him. However, some did. Human nature is to choose pride and selfishness. And so many have missed the connection between Jesus' testimony and God's truth. In the day and time in which this story happened, and in the later years when John the author writes these words, many people were tied up in the religious actions they thought were required to appease God and missed completely Jesus' testimony that he came to relieve us of the burden of earning salvation. He brought grace through faith. Think about what we learned about Nicodemus. He was depending on his knowledge, position, and religious activities, and he completely missed the spiritual rebirth that comes only through faith. But Jesus came from heaven. So don't miss this. He can speak about spiritual things, and we can trust what he says because he's been there. If there's a car accident scene, who does the officer want to talk to? The person who watched it happen, or the person who heard about it from Facebook's newsy feed? Or if there's a break-in at a store, whose story has greater credence? The clerk that faced the robber, or a passerby that happened along after the robber had escaped? Clearly, the eyewitness is the best choice. That person has the most reliable testimony. This is what John is saying about Jesus. Remember, his disciples are bent out of shape because John has lost popularity to Jesus. But John realizes that Jesus' testimony about spiritual things can't be beat. He came from heaven. Unfortunately, many do not believe Jesus' testimony. John goes on in verse 34, where we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit at work all at once. 
God the Father sent Jesus. Jesus speaks God's words. And the Spirit was given to Jesus without measure. The three personhoods of the Trinity are all at work in the salvation story. God the Father sent Jesus with unlimited access to the Spirit. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you look at verses 4 through 11, you find that believers are given a manifestation of the Spirit through spiritual gifts. But Jesus had unmeasured access. John knows this and recognizes that Jesus' gifts given by the Spirit far exceed his own. Jesus should be more popular than he is. God's Spirit rests fully on him and empowers him to speak the words given to him straight from God the Father. Can you see here that John's humility is because he fully understands who Jesus is and does not take his eyes off that truth? How could anyone compare when held up to Jesus? And John fully recognizes that anything he has in terms of gifts or abilities is grace given to him. John then tells us that God the Father has placed all things into the Son's hands and under his authority. John recognizes that Jesus has all authority. Not John. Remember in the first few verses of the Gospel of John, the Apostle tells us that Jesus was the Word. He was with God in the beginning and that all things were created through him. Paul verifies this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, which say, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. The writer of Hebrews opens his letter with this as the second sentence. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. And one final example. Paul in Romans chapter 11, 36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. It is clear in scripture that Jesus has all authority over all things. So for John to be swayed into thinking that he should be greater than or more popular than Jesus was absurd to him because he fully recognized who Jesus was. The key to John's uncommon response is his ability to overcome temptation and to not give in to pride. He did this by keeping in the forefront of his mind who Jesus was and who he was in light of that. John's humility seems natural when you fully understand who his disciples were trying to compare him to. Try it. Try comparing yourself to God. It's not so easy to feel prideful, is it? John kept this perspective even as his ministry was sunsetting and his popularity was waning and the crowds were thinning. This section ends with a perfect conclusion in verse 36. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. The one who rejects the Son will not see life, but God's wrath remains on him. You see, there's only two choices. Believe in the Son and receive eternal life, or reject him and suffer death as a result of God's wrath.
And wrath here is not meant to conjure up an image of an angry God waiting to smite you with a lightning bolt. Remember the contrast John is presenting here. God loves us so much, he gives us the ultimate sacrifice, the death of his son, so that we can escape the wrath. The wrath is the result of our sin and our disobedience. We are born into that. It is on us from the beginning. Sin separates us from God. He cannot accept sin into his presence, and there is a price to be paid for it in order for us to be with him. So Jesus paid that price. And John the Baptist knows already, even though at the time this conversation is happening with his disciples, Jesus hasn't died and he hasn't been resurrected. But John knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that belief in Jesus will result in eternal life. And maybe you've heard the philosophy that all religions lead to heaven or all religions are based on the same principles of God and good versus evil, and as long as you're a good person, God will find you acceptable. Well, from this passage, we can see that it is impossible to believe all religions lead to heaven, because the Bible claims that there are only two groups, those who believe in Jesus' testimony and those who don't. The first group has eternal life, the second does not. Faith in Jesus' teachings means you recognize that no other religion leads to salvation. John the Baptist clearly understood this. John will die before Jesus will. A short time after this story takes place, Herod has John thrown into jail and ultimately beheaded. John believes in an outcome he has not yet witnessed. Yet his faith is so strong he does not yield to the temptation of pride and jealousy, even when presented with it by his associates. This narrative is so powerful, especially when taken as a contrast to the first part of this chapter. There we saw Nicodemus, a talented, powerful teacher of teachers, unable to grasp spiritual truth. And here we have a wilderness preacher past his prime, losing popularity by the day as people flock to another, but who truly grasp the truth of who he is and who Jesus is. He is not concerned with his popularity. And if he had a Facebook account or a Twitter handle or a YouTube channel, I can assure you he would not be counting likes, retweets, and followers. He faithfully lived out his calling until he no longer could even when it looked to his shrinking crowd of followers that he had been upstaged and was no longer relevant. I want the kind of perspective John the Baptist had. I want to keep Jesus so centered in my mind that he eclipses every temptation to promote myself or feel a sense of jealousy over another's success. Jesus, help me live the words, you must increase, I must decrease. Thanks so very much for taking the time to listen to today's episode of The Bible for My Ordinary Life. I hope you learned something and our time together encouraged your personal relationship with God. Until next time, be sure to check out my companion website at www.bibleforTheOrdinaryLife.com.